0: to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, as you know, this October, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And to do that, we're going through each of the five solas, one by one, week by week, during each week during October. Uh, Of course, last week, we began with Sola Scriptura, uh, which is the doctrine of God's Word alone. Uh, That doctrine teaches that God's Word is our final authority in every matter uh, of faith and practice. It is our final authority as the people of God. This week, we're moving on to sola fide, or faith alone. So if you think about it this way, uh, sola scriptura asks the question, who's in charge here? And of course, the answer is the Bible. Uh, Sola fide asks the question, how might I be made right with God? And that's the question that we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now what's interesting is we have seen a number of men in the past, particularly during the Reformation, speak about this struggle that they had, this inner turmoil over how they could know that they had been made right with God, if they could at all. Uh, In fact, if you've ever uh, heard of John Bunyan, uh, he is a reformer who wrote one of the most popular books to come out of the Reformation, Pilgrim's Progress. And in this story, it begins with a man by the name of Christian who begins his journey with a book in his hand and a burden upon his back as he screams out in terror thinking about his condition, what shall I do? In other words, as he read his Bible, he urgently sought to figure out how he might be made right with God. Very important question. Maybe no more important question that we have. Now on one of his many stops, I love the many stops that he takes, but one captures my interest in a way that I'll never forget. He's on his way to visit Mr. Legality. But worldly wisdom told him to go meet him. And so he came to his home. But as he's approaching Mr. Legality's house, who represents legalism, or seeking to be made right with God based on our own works, he says he stops short Because as he's looking at the house, he becomes terrified of Mr. Legalism's house. And here's what he says as he looks at it. He says, I thought that the mountain that stands by his house, I think representing Mount Sinai or the mountain of the law. He says, I I, I, I feared, I thought that the mountain that stands by his house would have fallen upon my head. You see it? The, the, the mountain that represents the law, if he's going there to find answers to how to be right with God, he is immediately terrified because he recognizes that there is no way that he can keep the law represented by that mountain. It would crush him. And that's exactly the feeling that he had before this great mountain. He feared that if he looked to keeping the law represented by Mount Sinai, that mountain would fall on his head. Now. Interestingly, a century before, the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, had a similar experience in real time. A time that many uh, had had uh, in the church in that day. And, and his, his fear came as he was paralyzed after reading Romans 1, 16-17. Uh, there, you'll remember that it says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But then verse 17, "...for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith." Now you might think that sounds like a hopeful verse, but whenever Martin Luther read this, and the way that he was taught to read it by his priests that were leading him, uh, it actually meant something that was very fearful. In fact, he said, I hate that word, righteousness of God. I hate it. It's by that by which all of his teachers had taught him that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. And so Luther says that he became spiritually incapacitated, unable of living by faith because he knew of his guilt before God. And he used to wake up and walk up 28 white marble steps on his knees to get a pardon for his yearly sins. He would win an indulgence through causing himself to suffer because he thought his suffering, his own personal suffering and sacrifice, could perhaps merit him some brief forgiveness with God. I mean, this was a man who was spiritual, he was intense, he was sincere, and he was dead wrong. This is because the Roman Catholic Church said that justification with God was not something that happened as a, pos- uh, as a positional thing that you received and could know that you were justified with God. They said that it was a process by which you entered into by faith, but you needed to continue in through your works. It needed to be maintained. In fact, in in 1547, 1547, the Council of Trent said this, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, let him be anathema. Now, if you don't know this, anathema is actually a bad thing. They said it is a bad thing if you do not believe if you believe that you are saved by faith alone. But when Luther discovered the truth of the gospel, this idea of sola fide, it liberated him from perpetual guilt and it swung open the gates of heaven. He discovered that he was saved by faith alone by which he actually laid hold of the very righteousness of God. And this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to what Dr. Leon Morris says may be the most important single paragraph ever written, all right? So your expectations should be very high. We're looking at Romans 30, uh, three twenty-one to 26. Romans three twenty-one to 26. And we're going to see this morning that we are justified by faith alone because God is both just and the justifier. We are saved by faith alone because God is both just and the justifier. Now, we see this first in verses 21 to 23. You can look there with me as we look again at those verses. In Romans 3 21 to 23, hear what the Apostle Paul says. He says this But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now before we get to the the but now that begins verse 21, we really need to know what's happened up to now in this letter, right? Like where are we coming from? Like What's but now as opposed to what's just happened? Because something new seems to, to be happening, but we need to know what was the state of affairs before. See, Paul's spent the first two and a half chapters of Romans demonstrating this, that everybody is guilty before our righteous God. So we see God's righteousness in, in a few ways in the Bible. Uh, it's spoken of in different ways. So uh, one way is that you see the righteousness of God spoken of as an attribute of God. It's actually an extension of His goodness, that His judgments are always just and good and Right. And so, that is one way we speak of the righteous of God. It's His his actual character is righteous. But we also see a second way that it's spoken of. And that is that we see that His law, by extension, is righteous. It is His righteous standard. A standard that, that really reflects His righteous character to others. It expresses His character in punishing evil and in blessing good. And there's a third way that we see it used... The Bible also speaks of God's saving righteousness, which is given to and received by humans. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you'll notice that in this letter, what Paul is doing is he is moving from God's righteousness in the law that expresses his character into God's saving righteousness, which is going to save sinners. And he begins this in Romans 1, where he begins to expose the guilt of the Gentiles, who know that God's righteous decrees in creation. They've seen them clearly on display. And yet, he says, those Gentiles, though they might not have known me, should have seen me in creation and my character on display there, and yet they chose to worship the creature through idolatry rather than their God and their lives reflected it. You could tell that they did not submit to the true God. And he says, those those people, those Gentiles... They are guilty without excuse. Now, you you have to imagine this was originally a letter that was given to a church that had Jews and Gentiles. And I'm guessing that about this point in the letter, uh, some of those Jews were probably thinking to themselves, that's right, Paul, get them, right? Those sinners over there, like they need to be more like us, right? Then Paul says, hold on, I'm not done. And in the second part, what you find is, is as we move into chapter 2, the second half of Romans 2, Paul shifts attention to the Jews telling them that they, they are guilty too and they are guilty without escape. He declares in verse 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. Now many Jews understood the righteousness of God to actually be the attainable keeping of the law. The Ten Commandments and those 600 other laws that came from the law of God, from his Ten Commandments. He said, This is, they said, This is the law that you must keep and can keep. But here's the problem. What they didn't account for is the fact that God doesn't grade like a lot of human graders grade, right? God doesn't grade on a curve like some of your teachers do. I still remember my first day of uh, seminary in Hebrew. And I remember our professor saying, okay, so catch this, a 70 is an A because I grade on a curve. And I remember thinking, that's awesome. Like, a 70 is an A? I'm going to do great in this class. And then after the first test, I thought, I think he needs to curve it just a little bit more. Right? The reason is, is because he understood how hard the tests were. He said, look, you know, in this class, like, if you get a 70, man, you've done something. Speaking to how hard the law was to keep. But the problem is, I think that a lot of times we think that maybe God is like that professor that he kind of grades on a curve with us when it comes to us living in obedience to him. In fact, I think many professing Christians and non-Christians alike think that God might be grading on a serious curve when it comes to us. Now, we tend to be pretty rigid when it comes to others, but with us, we think we get a significant curve, right? Here's the problem. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you you feel the weight of that? The wrath of God is visited against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men and women. And Romans 3.20 concludes that the law has never and will never make anyone righteous like God. See, outside of Christ... The law isn't a passable test, it is an inflexible tutor. That's the point of the law. It is not meant to say like, hey, why don't you go ahead and get your like merit badges out and as soon as you keep one of these you can like start collecting how obedient you are so everybody can know how good you are. That's not the reason for the law. It's not a passable test, it's an inflexible tutor. It reminds me a lot of of archery. You know, the word for sin usually means to miss the point. Uh, to miss the 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 um, the bullseye of what you're aiming towards, and I don't know if you've ever done archery, but I, I do archery with my kids sometimes. And uh, when we do, you know, we pull out that bow and we start shooting, we start aiming at that target. And can you imagine? It's hard for me to hit the target when everything is set to like ideal conditions, right? Perfect bow, straight arrow, like aimer's just right, the target's like 10 feet away, like optimal like you know, circumstances, I'm still struggling to hit the middle. But imagine if the target is far away from you, and that that, that bow is, is bent, and, and the sight is bent, and the arrows, they're, they're curved. Can you imagine how tough it would be to hit that target? Well, the, the picture that we get in the Bible is, is that that is us. But we are bent and broken in such ways that God has said, here is what it looks like to be righteous like me. And yet, every time you shoot, you notice you miss. And that is meant to just awaken you to just how broken you are and how much you need something that you cannot get or achieve for yourself. You need something that is outside of yourself to save you. And that's exactly what God wants to bring us in the Gospel. It's as Isaiah said, even outside of Christ, even our best works are filthy rags the best shots that we make don't even hit the target right but catch this paul says the law was never meant to be a final destination for our hope it was actually more like a a sign that points forward towards something greater And and but now in this verse tells us that that something greater landed in the person of Jesus Christ who reveals a greater righteousness of God. But now, something new has dawned. That, that, That standard that you could not keep, I have brought you the answer that it pointed to in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. The very first step of faith. Is recognizing not just that everyone is a sinner by nature and by choice, but that you as an individual have sinned against God and are presently, currently residing under His wrath. And if not but for His mercy, it would be poured out on you forever. That is where we are. That is our default manufacturer, default setting as soon as we come out of our moms. We are ready for God's judgment and deserving of it. That's the default setting of every human. None are righteous, all are sinners. All are under the wrath of God, left to themselves. And Jesus, catch this, He didn't come for righteous, but this is the good news, He came for sinners. And catch this, because none are righteous and all are sinners, it means that Christ came for all of us. So if you're a non-Christian, please don't miss this point. The main difference between you and me and any other Christian is not that you're a sinner and that I'm not. The reality is that I am as sinful as anyone else, but the reality also is this: that my hope is not in myself, it is in God and in Christ alone. See, all have sinned and fallen short of glory of god 's glory, and everybody's guilty and deserving of the wrath of God, but catch this: if God it is god 's goodness that saves any of us, it is not our own goodness. Now catch this. I think this is important. maybe you're thinking as a non- Christian like how can God be? Wrathful and just and good at the same time. But just follow me for a second. It's actually God's goodness that requires Him to bring just punishment for our sins. Not unfair judgment, but just judgment. And if He didn't punish us for our sins, He'd cease to be righteous. And if He's not righteous, He's not good. And if He's not good, then He cannot be trusted. He is a capricious monster. But friends, hear me. He is righteous, and He is just, and He is good. And that's the God that God that has called you to Himself and His Son Christ. But come in close. Here's the problem that we find in the Old Testament that the Old Testament doesn't answer for us. This is where the Old Testament says we need a butt now. See, if we're guilty, if we're all guilty, how can God forgive our sins and still be righteous? Does that make sense? In other words... If, if we are sinners and unjust, then how can we become just and yet Christ still be righteous? See, justice requires the guilty to be punished. And how can we ever stand under the just punishment of the wrath of God? Who, who could stand amidst God's judgment? See, this is the conundrum, I believe, that we find in Exodus 34, 6 to 7 that we read before the service. Exodus 34, 6-7, there God tells Israel, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And catch this, He then says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Did you hear that? but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you see it? God is merciful. He is gracious. He is patient and abounding in love, but He will by no means clear the guilty. And everybody's guilty. So how can God forgive the unrighteous and still be righteous? How can anyone be made right with God? Well, here's how. Second, notice in verses 24 to 25, he says, Faith in Jesus lays hold of God's saving righteousness. Faith in Jesus lays hold of God's saving righteousness. See that in verses 24 to 25? L- look with me there again. This is what he says. He says, Not only have we fallen short of the glory of God, he says, But and, and, We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. See, this is ground zero of grace, of the grace of God that's been given to you and me. And Paul, he gives us three pictures to, to unfold and to display the beauty of this grace. And to explain how God justified us by grace and through faith. Uh, notice these three pictures. First, he says that we are justified by His grace as a gift. We're justified by grace as a gift. See, justification is a legal term. And you might not usually put gifts together with legal terms, but that's what he does here. And he says this legal term is a term justification that means to find someone right, righteous, or innocent. That they're not guilty. Now here I believe that C.H. Dodd misunderstands propitiation that we're going to talk about in a minute. But I like the idea of justification that he gives here when he says that it's better than a pardon. See, justification is better than a pardon in this. A pardon removes the punishment, but not the guilt. Justification is better in that it not only removes the punishment, but also the guilt. Declaring that the threat of punishment can no longer be justly inflicted. That is good news for sinners. See, past, present, and future sins are removed as far as the East is from the West. And take note, this justification or being declared righteous, it comes from God. It is not from in and of yourself or works that you sort of muster up by like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is an alien outside kind of righteousness. In fact, that's exactly what Luther called uh, this righteousness that comes to us from God. He calls it an alien righteousness. Now I know in the past I've used that term and some people have said, oh, so like, like E.T. and like aliens? I'm like, no. No. An alien righteousness is not from extraterrestrials. Uh, It is actually from God who is outside of us. Alien to us, giving us a righteousness that is not from us, but He gives it to us. It is the very righteousness of God that comes and visits us. We take hold by faith of a righteousness that is outside of ourselves and we receive the very righteousness of God Himself. Is that not amazing? It is God's righteousness that is given to us. God imputes the righteousness of Christ, His eternal Son, to us. We are not saved by our righteousness. Even our faith response is actually a gift that comes from God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Because every good comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, right? Isn't that what James says? So even that first movement towards God is because of His gracious action on our behalf and for us. See, second, we see another picture that's beautiful as well. Justification comes through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption, it's kind of a fiscal word. Justification is legal. Redemption is fiscal. Talking about money. It speaks of buying something back. You remember that God redeemed Israel out of slavery to Egypt. Uh, He told the Pharaoh, let my people go. I'm going to make them a people and put my name on them. And the Pharaoh said, you cannot have my people. And God said, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have all of my people put the blood of a lamb over the doorposts. And everyone who does not have that blood of a lamb over their doorposts, I'm going to take their firstborn child. And he did that. And What happened through that is Egypt lost many sons and daughters because of God's judgment and wrath because they did not trust God, obey God. And through that, God rescued His people. He delivered them out of bondage to Egypt. And that's when the Pharaoh released them and God redeemed Israel. But how did God save guilty sinners? How did God do that? Well, there's a third term here that I think is really important that describes that, and that is propitiation. Now, now, propitiation, I know that's a big word. Some of y'all just went to sleep and you're like taking a nap for the next few minutes, right? Until we get to another good story. But listen, propitiation is an important word for Christians. It's a word that really uh, gives us a picture of what is so fundamental to faith and what it does and achieves and accomplishes for us based on what happened at the cross. See, propitiation, it, it is a big word that simply means that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfied the wrath of God. It appeased Him. It meant that God is no longer simply tolerating us or looking over our sins. It has been satisfied in full. God's wrath. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It says, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Some have called God sending His Son to die and satisfy His wrath for us. A a case of cosmic child abuse. As though that was like an abusive thing for God to do. But catch this, the Son and the Father are one. And, And the Son willingly came for you and me to rescue us because there was no other way. And and if you think that this is abuse, just catch this. I think that that misunderstands God's righteousness. It completely misunderstands it. See, sin and guilt must be dealt with to reconcile us to God. The only way to come for you as a sinner to come before a holy and righteous God is for Him to remove the barrier of our sin and to assuage His just wrath for sinners. The very fact that we don't understand the severity of God's judgment on sin really reveals just how broken our relationship with Him is. See, we're back in in Eden. And and we're arguing that our real problem isn't our disobedient, but God's standard of of justice and righteousness. Right? God, your, 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 your laws are too extreme. And God says, you think they're too extreme because they're so broken. You don't even understand what goodness and righteousness looks like anymore. The reality is, that this all points to our biggest problem, which is our hearts. And the reality there is, is that God's judging righteous character requires Him not to let sin go without punishment. If He did that, He wouldn't be good. But God's saving righteousness also deemed it right and good that He sacrifices one-of-a-kind Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners and to restore relationship with them. And Jesus willingly, He willingly took the bullet for you and me to take away the eternal wrath of God and justify us. That's what God has done for us in Christ. And what Christ has done willingly, not accidentally, for you and me. What kind of love is that? That the eternal Son of God would die on the cross to take back God's wrath for you. Have you ever had a love like that displayed to you? And the answer is obviously no! No! No, not except for in Christ. Christian, don't miss what that means. That means that while you were yet sinners, God died for you, but your relationship and your status has changed with God. This is so important. I, re- I remember when I was in college, um, I was like really studying theology a lot on my own. It wasn't my major. I just loved God and was getting excited about the things of God. And I remember in that, in that time, I, I really got burdened because I realized what a sinner I was. And I remember thinking, like, I know God wants me to obey Him because it's the right thing to do. Not realizing that it was the best thing for me and God wanted His best for me and that always is obedience to God. But I just felt like I was supposed to obey God and that I wasn't very good at it. And so our relationship was really kind of like uh, that of someone who has like sort of an unwanted house guest, right? Where you're just sort of tolerating them. And so God, I felt like when I would come before Him, I was just grateful that He would even tolerate my presence. And so that's kind of the way that I viewed me and God. And yet, as I studied the Scriptures and I came to understand what it means that we have been, that we have been saved, that God actually, in Christ, has propitiated me He has satisfied God's wrath. And not only that, He has united me with Christ in such a way that the the very righteousness of God in Christ has been accredited to me and that when God looks upon me, He sees not this wicked sinner that I am left to myself, but He sees His Son. I recognize that my relationship status has been forever changed. And do you see the way that that changes the way that you live for God and view God and want to serve and love Him because He's not looking at you and tolerating you, but because He loves you to the point of giving that which He loves most, His very own Son. What a change. See, the reality is that God's judging righteous character required Him to pay the price. But here's what He did. He paid the price. This is what Luther calls the sweet exchange a phrase that I believe he probably got from the Epistle of Diognetus. I can't prove that, but it was written in the 2nd century. He spoke of this same sweet exchange. And here's what he says in the Epistle to Diognetus. The writer says, Oh, the sweet exchange! Oh, the incomprehensible work of God! Oh, the unexpected blessings! That the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Do you see it? We give Christ our guilt, and Christ in return gives us His very righteousness. That's the sweet exchange. By by faith, we actually take hold of the very righteousness of God in Christ. And it is all of grace. See, justification gives us confidence. It gives us confidence to go before the throne of grace. Not shaking and trembling, thinking that like, oh, God's got to tolerate my request again. But knowing that He receives us as sons and daughters wanting to hear from us. That is change. Are you using your justification this morning though as you think about this? And I hope that it's, it's resounding in your hearts and minds that you are, many of you are being reminded of who you are in Christ. But let me just ask you this morning, if perhaps... You're using your justification to justify your sins. Is it possible that you're doing that instead of using it to bring hope to sinners? See, I believe it's spiritual malpractice to use justification to make less of sin and catch this this is a human problem that's why romans you'll remember in chapter 3 he tells us that we are justified by grace through faith in christ jesus and then you'll remember in chapter 4 he talks about abraham who was saved by faith and then chapter 5 you'll remember what he says he says so shall we shall we that we receive such grace shall we sin all the more that grace may abound now why would they he asked that question well, it could be that you have understood grace and the fullness of the love that's been lavished upon you and you think to yourself, well, then I, I can just go out and sin and who cares? And Paul says this. He says, God forbid, right? Like if your relationship has changed, your life changes. And so this morning, I'm just wondering, maybe, maybe you're, you're, you haven't had the proper response to sin in light of justification which was brought to you by the death of the Son of God. Maybe it's that in your heart, and you wouldn't say this out loud, but you think to yourself, you know, everyone sins. It's not really a big deal. We're all just sinners, you know. Like, I don't think anybody says we're all just sinners, you know, when you think about the price that God paid for sin. The blood of His Son. No sin is light in the eyes of our eternal God. It's because we have Jesus. Now, apparently some in Rome did that because they were saying, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? But let me ask you this morning, about practical ways that you specifically m- may believe in your hearts wrong things about sin that are causing you to justify it. And maybe there are subtle ways that your heart can manipulate this reality when you sin. So, so men and women, uh, when you don't guard your eyes against lust, uh, or, or when you make a business deal that might be entirely legal, do you think that as you make that decision, well, you know, I know it's bad, but Jesus did pay for all my sins, so I guess I'll kind of just do what I want to do and trust that it works out in the end. Or maybe you're a student and uh, there might be this temptation to cheat at school because everybody's doing it. I mean, everybody's cheating, so it can't be that bad, right? According to the world standards. Or singles, are you putting yourself in dangerous dating positions where you feel yourself in the heat of the moment justifying sin because of your justification? Our justification ought to cause us to run from sin like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. That's what justification ought to do. It ought to cause us to see clearly the heinousness of sin and the beauty of God in Christ. See, God progressively will sanctify those he positionally justifies, he makes us more holy. I like what Justin Owen said rightly. He said, We are not saved by faith and works. That is true. But by faith, that works. See, God, if He saves you and has really justified you, He will change your life. You're not going to be perfect tomorrow. you won't be perfect till Jesus comes back, but you are going to be perfected and made more and more holy through the work of God in your life. But also, notice that Christ's righteousness is so much better than self-righteousness. Did you know that? Christ's righteousness, brothers and sisters, it is so much better than your own self-righteousness. So catch this. I've said before that the default setting of humanity is a number of things. One of them is self-righteousness. Right? Isn't that what Adam and Eve did in the garden? Like justified themselves by blaming others? And self-righteousness basically says that God ought to accept me for something that comes from me rather than because of His grace. It ought to be for something good that comes from me rather than because God is good. And it refuses to own our helpless bondage to sin unless God saves us. It kills relationships both with others and with God. Just like Adam's first response to sin was blaming the woman that God gave him, that's what we tend to still do. Let me give you an example about how this plays out practically like yesterday for me. Because I'm still in recovery, right? So, I'm at home alone, which means that I'm, I'm having to cook for myself. Um, so that means I'm eating a lot of tuna. And so, uh, I pull out the can and we had this like really funky like can opener that doesn't do it the right way, right? Like from the side and you just kind of, this one's like, you put it on the lid and it's just weird and you open it up and as soon as you take it off, like the can doesn't just like flip open. You like have to literally pry it open. Now, here's the problem for me. It's sharp and it's metal. And so I'm going through like my second can of, of uh, you know, of tuna and like I go to get it and I grab it and I cut my fingernail like in the half, like right here. Start bleeding. And you know what my first response was? Like I kid you not. Carrie, why did you have to get this stupid can opener? Like this is not a good can opener. Like what are you, why did not you taken this back and gotten a new, can, we need a new can opener. Nobody's in the house. It's just Shep. Shep's looking at me stupid, but he's always looking at me stupid. And so I'm sitting there thinking like, this is horrible, right? And in the midst of it, I'm just sitting there thinking like, Carrie's in Florida and I'm blaming her for like a can opener that just cut my finger. And by the way, I'm a grown man and I can go buy a new can opener if I need to. And by the way, I'm a grown man. I don't have to make my own food. I can eat out. So (laughs) I'm just thinking to myself, like, like I've got issues that just need to be dealt with. They're like deep, right? But do you see how that natural impulse, like, just, it can't be me that, like, messed up here. Like, somebody's at fault. Like, that didn't start in my kitchen yesterday. That started in the Garden of Eden, right? So, we need to be aware that we are always trying to, to cover and shelter ourselves with really embarrassing robes. When God says, I've got something better for you to clothe yourself with, I want you to clothe yourself with my very son, Jesus Christ. That is who I want to be your covering, who I want to to have you be known by. Friends, the riches of Christ's righteousness is so much sweeter than any of the dead fruit of self righteousness or self justification that it offers to us. Now, we're all in danger of forgetting our hope rest only in Christ's righteousness and not our own. So let me just ask you some questions that might help you think through whether or not you perhaps this morning are trusting more in your own righteousness than in Christ's righteousness. So do you see your own do you struggle to see your own sin? Is it hard for you? Is it like a speck that you just can't quite ever see? Do you see the sons, the sins of others with great clarity? The big two by fours of other sins. They're just so blatantly apparent to you. Do you find yourself getting extremely angry over the sins of others, but when it comes to yours, not so much? And when others speak to you about their sins, about your sins, do you become defensive or do you always have a justification for your sins? Do you feel inescapably caught when you don't have a defense? Are you able to freely confess your sins to others? Do you struggle to take a break from work because you fear that God can't make it without you? Do you create rules and standards for living that aren't biblical and then judge others based on it? When you're talking and and telling people about things, do you always come off as the hero of every story? Like, can people literally wait for the moment when you step into a phone booth and take off your glasses and put on your cape? Do you sacrifice others to save face. Well, hear me. There's nothing more life-giving than receiving Christ's righteousness. And few, few things are more spiritually deadening than self-righteousness. It will lead you to be sad and angry. It will kill relationships with others. And why? Why? Because it takes God's grace to restore upward relationship with Him and outward relationships with others. Your righteousness can't build things. It will only tear things down. Only Christ's righteousness can bring life to dead things. So if I plumb the depths of my soul, there is no hope apart from Christ for me or others. But if I plumb the depths of my identity in Christ, I become a spring of the fountain of living waters that will be life-giving. This is the third thing that we see here, though. This last thing. The Gospel reveals that God is righteous. The gospel reveals that God is righteous. Uh, Look again at that second half of verse 25 and 26. And hear what what the word of God says. Romans 3 25. It says, "This, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the One who has faith in Jesus. So friends, this is how God answers that ancient conundrum of how the righteous God can save sinners and remain righteous. See, God revealed both His judging righteousness and His saving righteousness at the cross. He dealt with the guilt of sin and saved sinners god is both just and the justifier let me just give an illustration of this because i i hear uh this a lot this this question why couldn't god just forgive without sending jesus to the cross like why couldn't he just pretend that it didn't happen he's god well it's because god is righteous in his very nature And and so it's not like he can like put on pause being righteous in one moment and still be righteous. It's who he is. He is altogether righteous and good all the time. Never a break, never a delay in that. He's not willy-nilly with the law. The law reveals his righteous character, which he cannot go against. So whenever someone forgives another person, the reality is, you know this, someone always has to pay, right? Like it's never like, oh, you forgave me, so nobody had to like absorb the cost. That's not the way the world works. Somebody always absorbs the cost. Uh, that's the reality. Now, just to give you an illustration, when I was younger, um, I was uh, with a friend of mine, and we were playing, uh, we were playing Home Run Derby uh, in his mom's house, right? Uh, it wasn't his. He didn't own it. Uh, he was just, like, living there. And so uh, we're playing Home Run Derby in the house. And we had this big woofle ball bat, like the red ones, you know, that you never miss the ball, and uh, a rubber ball that was like about this big, and we're having a a blast when his mom shows up, and she's like, what are y'all doing? Y'all cannot do this. And we were like, well, we were just having fun playing like home run derby, right? And he said, uh, she said, "Uh, you've got to stop. You're not allowed to do that. And we were like, okay. And she walked out, and then I looked at him, and I said, "Uh, yeah, so um, I still have one more hit and he's like yeah that's fair and so (laughs) he throws the ball and I I mean it was like the best hit ever it goes straight up and they had this really beautiful antique chandelier and it was like slow motion went straight towards it and knocked it down and uh and she could hear it from the outside because she came running in and she all she saw was the ball still bouncing and her chandelier like crashed on the floor and us sitting there going "Ooh." now here's what happened uh you know, they paid for it. I mean, I, I was grounded for like two years, but um, I still might be grounded. But, but in the moment, like, you have to recognize that what was amazing was they said, you know what, like, we're going to cover the cost for that, um, but like, you need to obey from now on. And so they covered the cost. Now, here's the deal. They forgave me. They forgave him. But it's not that the price and the cost of fixing the chandelier, which was probably irreplaceable, like was ever, um, was ever like not paid for. Uh, What what happened there was I was forgiven and I didn't have to pay for it, but she did. She had to pay for that chandelier. And that is what happens when you forgive someone. Someone has to pay the cost of what is lost. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God did. He had to pay the cost for what was lost to His glory, uh, to our goodness. And He did all of that through the cross. Now catch this, the only way that God could justify sinners and remain just was to send His Son to die for us. So in Christ, we see God reveal His saving righteousness, whereby He rescues sinners. He paid the debt He did not owe. For those who owed a debt, they could not pay. That's what God did for you and me. Now, if you're a non-Christian, don't miss this. You can be made right with God by putting your faith in Jesus and trusting Him with your life. There is no other way. You don't need to clean yourself up to come to God. Put your faith in Christ and you will be made right with God. Justified based on Christ's work for you and not on your own works for Him. He will then progressively change you and reshape you and make you more in the image of His Son until Christ returns or you die to go be with Him. But today, what God wants you to know is you can be made right with God in Christ. Not only this, this is the doctrine of sola fide. For us as believers, now I know that some of you might be wondering. You have Roman Catholic friends, family. Maybe you're there right now and you're visiting, and you might be wondering if the Roman Catholic Church still teaches justification by faith and works. Some may wonder if they still teach that. Now there are too many evangelicals who have spoken on this for me to have to like quote them all. But they would all say that actually the Roman Catholic Church hasn't changed their doctrine on salvation by faith and works, and that they kind of can't. They can't change what they did at the Council of Trent because of what we talked about last week, right? The church is authoritative over the Word, and so if they change their minds, then they don't look so authoritative, right? But I do believe that there are Christians in the Catholic church. I think it's accidental because it's not according to their doctrine, but I believe that there are. I, I think I know some. Now, I want to close with just a a wise pastoral word from John Owen on this matter. Just to help you think through uh, folks that you might be sharing with Christ with who might be in the Roman Catholic Church or have questions for you. He said that the, the heart, the heart may be better than the head sometimes and that some may be justified by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ, even though they deny such doctrines. Now, to believe the doctrine, this is what he says about it. In other words, they might you're not saved by salvation by faith alone by the doctrine. You're actually saved by faith that is in Christ alone. That's what saves you. It's not your ability to articulate it, but it's the actual reality that you are trusting Christ. And here's what John Owen says. He says to believe the doctrine of it or not to believe it as thus or thus explained is one thing. And to enjoy the thing or not to enjoy it, is another. I know I doubt, but that many men uh, do receive more grace from God than they understand or will own, and have a greater efficacy of it in them than they will believe. Men may be really saved by that grace which doctrinally they do deny. And they may be justified by the imputation of that righteousness, which in opinion they deny to be imputed. For the faith of it is included in that general assent which they give unto the truth of the gospel. And such an adherence unto Christ may ensue thereon. As that their mistake of the way whereby they are saved by him shall not defraud them of a real interest therein. And for my part, I must say that notwithstanding all the disputes that I see and read about justification, I do not believe but that the authors of them Do really trust under the mediation of Christ for the pardon of their sins and their acceptance with God, and not their own works or obedience, nor will I believe the contrary unless they expressly declare it. So, in other words, if they do not say that they are saved by something plus Jesus, and they say they do believe that they are saved by Christ alone, then we must take confidence and encourage that. We are justified by faith alone. Because God is both just and the justifier. And there is no other way to be saved except to put our faith in Christ. Let's pray.